Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? Once again, this is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, there are many ways of getting our show. You can download directly from our website at techcentral.ie. Use a smartphone podcast app. iTunes there for you, of course, or you can turn us on every Friday on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Joining me as always is Editor-in-Chief of Tech Central, Niall Kitson. And I suppose, Niall, the big story this week really is uh, coming from America. Yeah, well, we've got the release of Chelsea Manning, uh, who you might remember was responsible for one of the biggest leaks of government documents in US history. Um, she was uh, serving in Iraq, uh, came into contact with a lot of uh, sensitive information, not top secret information, but sensitive information, uh, released it via WikiLeaks, um, was apprehended and sentenced to 35 years. Now, President Obama, who finished up in office there, uh, finishes on today, actually, as the show's going out on the 20th. Uh, he has commuted her sentence to time served plus uh, five months. So she'll be out on the 12th, I gather, of May. And uh, yeah, some people are not happy, as you can imagine. House Republicans are apoplectic. A lot of people are happy about it. Um, and uh, in the middle, we have Julian Assange, who last week said he would go to America to face trial if Chelsea Manning got clemency, which uh, sounded like an empty, I wouldn't say empty threat, but a, an, an empty, empty offer, empty promise at the time. And uh, look what has happened. So ball is very much in WikiLeaks corner. Does does Julian Assange go to face trial or does he stay home? We we'll keep an eye on that one as well. And uh, Edward Snowden, no pardon for uh, our Ed. <laughs> No, Two more years no. in Russia for Ed, uh, from what I hear in the news. Uh, in other news, uh, I have a, an image in my head of Will Smith and okay. robots. Okay. And there's a story this week where that movie is actually reality with the EU. Tell me all about this. Uh, yeah, well, anyone that's a fan of um, the fiction of Isaac Asimov, as we are, um, I think it was established a couple of weeks ago, uh, will know that um, robots operate according to three basic laws. So can you remember them offhand, Dusty? Oh, I don't remember. The, I shall okay. not harm humans is one of them anyway. Yeah, as, Asimov's three laws of robotics, you may not injure a human being. You have to obey the orders of a human being so long as it doesn't contravene the first rule and you can protect your own existence so long as it doesn't contravene the first rule. So look after you humans, look after yourself, do what you're told so long it is as it is part of looking after humans. So that's that's kind of the, the idea behind Asimov's laws. We are going to see them, in a manner of speaking, transformed into law at EU level after the uh, European Parliament voted 17-2 in favour of something that, that would be called electronic personhood. You see, this is the bit where, you know, you're describing, you know, Isaac's books and, and the three laws of, of, of robotics. And now we're talking about the EU are actually drafting laws for this kind of piece. It's, it's fact is meeting fiction. It's, it really is blowing my mind. But I kind of, in some ways, I understand what the, the EU are doing because they're kind of looking at robots as if a robot was a company. Because a company doesn't exist and can't think for itself. Uh, like a robot may exist, but it can't think for itself. But yet it can do things. 
like a company. Yeah, can. It, it's kind of related to corporate personhood, all right. I think a, a similar kind of mindset applies. Uh, I mean, the vote, you're, the EU is basically going to put together an agency to act as a task force on this kind of thing. And they're looking at the legal definition of smart autonomous robots. So smart underlined there as opposed to you know the things that are on a, a car production line say you know at which line do you draw the line between that and something governed by AI that can actually solve problems and, and think for itself so part of the rules and regulations that will come in uh, some of them are quite common sense and they're they're kind of in use already um, albeit at a local level uh, I mean in Ireland we have a system of registration for drones uh, for good reason. Uh, the EU wants to have a system of uh, regulation for the most advanced robots. So, you know, now again, if you want to buy the, the arm that will, you know, move a chess piece around, that's one thing. If you want to buy a robot that will actually put together the moves to win a game of chess, that might be something slightly different. Um, so there is that. They're also looking for uh, a reporting structure uh, for companies to um, basically um, not quite regulate, but to get a, a better picture of how companies are bringing robots into the workforce, uh, because there's a taxation involve, uh, element involved here. Because if you have a massive manufacturing company that in one year they're ta- they they paid X amount in income tax, there's a massive automation project, and maybe two two years later they're only paying a fraction of that. Um, naturally enough, um, countries will go where where is our income tax gone from? And this will be a way of figuring out what the actual drain is on economies because automation fundamentally will remove revenue from governments and it will make uh, uh, it will make it much more complicated and difficult to fund things like healthcare, for example, or to pay for social welfare. So these are the kind of issues that the EU wants to keep uh, wants to keep an eye on. But also, and this is one that you mightn't have thought about, is um, having mandatory insurance. Now, not for the robots themselves. I mean, I guess, I guess so. Yes, I mean, you know, for for the robots, indeed, because they are expensive commodities. Mm -hmm. But also for what happens if a robot misbehaves or does something or fails and it ends up impacting on a human, right? Say uh, a robot arm fails and something falls on somebody's foot crushing it and making sure that uh, ensuring that they can't uh, continue to work mm. or maybe a manager gets hit by uh, you know a loose part or a malfunctioning robot this sort of thing so these are the contingencies that the EU is looking to is looking at you know and and what kind of devices what kind of robots will be uh, will be uh, covered by this uh, what will be the societal social effects of having robots um, so yeah, quite forward-looking. Um, yep, the stuff is science fiction, as far as you're concerned. What do you make of all this? Uh, as I say, I think it's incredible because it's fiction becoming reality to a certain extent. It's almost like, you know, they're putting the rules in place before uh, we actually have robots that need those kind of rules. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, right. I just so, find I think. that's what I love about this show is kind of, you know, we talk about these things that sound like, you know, quite insane. But I'm sure in five or ten years time, we'll be sitting back going, yeah, yeah, I remember we talked about that actually ages ago. And and it makes yep. sense. Um, and I, I love the fact that, you know, the EU does an awful lot of things and uh, I'm just kind of quite impressed <laughs> yeah me too actually that's, it's, that's, it's very that's forward looking that's my reaction yep. listen the other uh, story that uh, we just want to talk about quickly was uh, Nintendo because you're a gamer and the uh, Nintendo Switch is uh, uh, making some headlines uh, describe to me very quickly what the Nintendo Switch is 
Yeah, Nintendo Switch for, you know, at its most basic level, it's a tablet with two controllers at the side and that detach. So it's uh, either a mobile gaming system with a tablet and a touchscreen or it's a, a full, fully functional console. You bring it home, you plug it into a dock, dock plugs into your television and you get to continue playing the same games. That's, that's it in a uh, nutshell. Now, as a gamer, are you impressed? Um, for what Nintendo does... It might be a little bit advanced because you remember their massive hit. Um, they haven't bettered the Wii U. Sorry, mm. they, they, they haven't bettered the Wii. The Wii U was a bit of a disaster because they, they tried to take it into a slightly more advanced direction. I mean, the Wii worked for it because of its simplicity. Um, it didn't feel like a regular console and you were doing things that were novel with it and people who weren't gamers really flocked to it. I think this is a system that it's slightly more complicated. Um, I'm not sure it has that same casual gaming appeal. I think probably Nintendo are better off looking at things like smartphone apps or, um, you know, tablet games, that, that kind of thing, uh, to get that same sort of casual gaming experience there. Um, this is their kind of last roll of the dice, I think, when it comes to the, the home entertainment system. They don't have a content... Uh, ecosystem. They're trying things out with multiplayer. Um, free for the moment. We'll start charging for it eventually. I think they're just looking to move too far towards the likes of the Xbox and the PlayStation, and it probably won't work out for All them. Right. Um, starting price three hundred dollars. Um, see where it goes. Okay, so you're interested, but you ain't buying. I suppose is the uh, uh, summation there. Uh, the other quick, very quick thing uh, we were just going to mention was that uh, Microsoft are now getting into eBooks, which is not really a, a surprise. You know, Apple are doing it, and uh, Amazon are doing it, and uh, Google are doing it well why not Microsoft (laughs) yeah but they don't have uh, a nice device to go with it so yeah April this year, is, it's going to happen. And uh, also, just uh, if, if because January has been incredibly busy so far, and I was thinking about the shows, uh, I was coming into the studio today, and, uh, you know, kind of, it's the middle of January. Already we've had two massive podcasts this year. One was uh, the CES program. We, we were talking about that in Las Vegas. Very underwhelmed by that. Then last mm. week's show, we had the big feature on the Young Scientists, where now I was talking to tons of people down the Young Scientists section, and that was overwhelming. The there was actually too much. Yeah. Exactly, but the ideas they're coming out with, and these are secondary school students. Oh, believe it. If you haven't had a, had a listen to it, uh, listen back to it. You get on the website at, at techcentral.ie. For now, Nan, thank you very much. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. This week, Niall went along to the opening of Slack's new office on Hatch Street in Dublin, where he met the director of customer experience, Ali Rail, to learn about the company, its commitment to Ireland, but most importantly, why it's important to deal with a real human being when something goes wrong. I've come out to the opening of Slack's new offices in Dublin to meet with the Director of Customer Experience, Ali Rail. And we're going to talk a little bit about messaging, its past, its present, its its future, um, the unlikely role of gaming in it, and the company's history in Ireland, which uh, is quite significant in relation to the, the overall um, company history, because Slack is still very young. Is that right? We are a young company. Uh, We have been working on Slack for about four years. It's been a product that's been in the public that people could use for just under three years. And we opened our Ireland office a year and a half ago. So half of the company's history, basically, we have had uh, a presence in Ireland. And actually, this is our first international expansion. And uh, a very large office it is too. I mean, um, how big is the office here in Dublin at the moment? Because I know it's sort of... uh, it's two-thirds complete, I guess, by your own reckoning, but and there's a lot of empty seats out there. A lot of empty seats. It's um, 29,000 square feet. 
So right now we have about 55 people here. Uh, we'll be able to reconfigure some of the things you see, some of the open spaces, and fit another 100 or so in here. Uh, so this office is, you know, a third built out at this point. Right, very, very impressive uh, altogether. So let's, I suppose, talk about Slack the product mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of consumers might have heard the term. They most likely haven't used it. A lot of small businesses probably are using it because I think it's a it's um, a product that really caters to that space particularly well. So Slack, some people have called it an email killer. Some people are saying it's something else entirely. How would you describe it? Uh we don't try to put too many labels around it. Like It is a real-time messaging tool for teams. So it is a way for groups of people who are trying to get things done, who are trying to do work together, to um, message one another in real time, to share files, and, to, and now we also have uh, calling and video. So it's basically your communications hub for the place where you get work done. And looking to solve certain problems, I know, that drive people nuts, like email chains and whatnot. Yeah, the email chain. So the thing about email is email is not bad, and we're not trying to kill email. Email is just not well suited towards internal communication. So if you're working with the same 10 people every day, the reply all thread is a terrible way to talk. Um, like It's just a bad way to get communi- to get information around. So the premise of Slack was, why don't we take all the things that people are going to type into an email and instead put them into a single location where everybody who should have access to it can find it easily, where everybody can comment in real time and where nobody is trying to manage a recipient list. Um, like It simply takes all of the friction out of uh, normal communication and puts the ease of communication at the center of what's truly important. I guess it occupies uh, sort of a, a middle ground between instant messaging and um, I, guess, I, I guess traditional email in the sense that you are you can share files if you want, but the nature of the conversations tend to be quite casual. So if, you, if you're making a sales pitch, Slack isn't the tool for you. The email it certainly has its place for that. But if you want to ask who's going to lunch at one o'clock, that's, that's really where the strength is or has a file been uploaded, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's... Um One thing that we have discovered with Slack, and this is something we suspected, but it's borne out, is that people, um, when you expose the whole of a person to their coworkers, so not just the very formal, very practiced email human, plus, you know, the other person that they might see occasionally at the coffee machine, but the entire person, the way they think, the way they communicate, when you provide a more even surface for people to communicate more rapidly and in a more quick fire fashion, and whether that's, um, hey, did you finish that file? Or, hey, do you want to go out to lunch? Um, Both of those things actually start to... uh, I guess, help build the picture of the human. And everybody starts to get to know one another a little bit better. There are things about us, there are things about the way that we communicate that go to the heart of who we are as people. And as people understand those that they're working with more, um, they become more attuned to the rhythm of their work. They are more likely to um, want to bend over backwards to help somebody. Like There are stronger connections that can be made when everybody is working in a less guarded fashion. And Slack really enables that regardless of, like I said, whether it's a, you know, a quick, like, let's go to lunch or you know, a really quick fire conversation about something you're working on or even a longer form uh, message. Like We do sometimes send messages that are you know, a few paragraphs long and they're a little more 
uh, carefully sculpted like you would see in an email. But it's all in the same form, and that's what's really important because then people can react to it. I think that idea that you hit on there of sort of dealing with the whole person, uh, it's almost a, it's something that you've kind of carried over into your relationships with your clients as well. So you know, in the same way that you want people to interact with people within the businesses, Slack interacts with companies pretty much in that same way. Yeah, um, there's one concept that Stuart, our CEO, likes, which is uh, bring your whole self to work day. And we like the idea of, like, the people that we hire, the people who work here, like, being their entire whole selves. Um, it's We are all more than just the person who comes to work and does a job. And the people that we hire on customer experience, um, we encourage them to bring their whole selves to their work. Because what I want is for every one of our customers to know that, like, there is a human, there's an interesting person on Slack side who is helping me with my problem and they're probably a pretty neat person and they just happen to be working at Slack. Like I want them to know that we have, we have their back. We have a person who's going to help them out. We're not going to, you know, just fling off a couple of macros and hope that they go away. Um, we are invested. And uh, it is one of these things that whenever somebody um, engages with a multinational company, they're expecting either a bot or somebody in a call center that, does not care one jot about the company they're working for. Um, so having that element of personality, to what extent do you think, okay, well, this is where Slack begins or Slack ends and the person begins. Do you see any difference or do you see every um, staff member as sort of a mini ambassador whole formed that they don't need you know, additional coaching to get on message or anything like that? Uh, everyone is an ambassador. So the way that I think about the Slack experience for people um, and so go back all the way to when we started, and there are two ways that people could have like a Slack experience. And one is that they use their application, they have it on their computer, they have it on their phone. And the other way is that they needed a contact support. So we didn't have any advertising, we didn't have any swag. Like there was no organic interaction with Slack, the brand. Um, so basically, any support interaction they that anybody had needed to support the product that they were already experiencing. That needed to be fused into one seamless experience where it felt like the product and the people were, you know, working in the same place. And now we have out-of-home advertising. We have brand campaigns. Like, we are places where people can find us, but that has not changed. Um, we, I really want everybody who contacts us to be like, I didn't just get support, I got Slack support. Like, I feel like I talk to Slack because every interaction that someone has with us is something that will build in their mind um, on their impression of us. Like, if they have a bad experience, then that is going to taint Slack. If they have a good experience, then that is going to boost Slack. In general, we ask people to keep our application open for many hours a day at their jobs. Like, they don't have a choice. This is how, like, this is where they need to be in order to get work done and in order to talk to their coworkers. That needs to be as pleasant as possible. Um, nobody wants to have software open on their computers that they hate. So uh, everything that we can do to build a pleasant experience is worth it. One of the things that I think is quite interesting that Slack does is getting the entire staff involved in, in customer experience um, to make sure that developers don't get siloed off into a corner and go off on their own tangents mm -hmm. doing things. So when you hire in, say, a developer or you know a coder or somebody mm -hmm. that this isn't their first sphere of 
influence. How do you find um, people responding to customers when they're entering a job and not really expecting that kind of interaction? Uh, it varies. So we have over 200 engineers now, and obviously we have people all across the spectrum, some who have been really, really apprehensive at first, and some who have just been like so excited that they get to talk to somebody who's using the thing that they're building. And of course, there's a spectrum in, bet- in between. The apprehension often, often comes about because um, it is scary to do a job that is not your own when you're very, very good at your job. Like it is... We're asking our engineers to do something very frightening, which is uh, completely abandon the thing that they are fantastic at and the reason that we hired them to do a totally different job. Um, But when you are building something, you know how it works. And when you know how it works, you're able to support it. And it's... um, there have been times when engineers have come in and, you know, it's something that we would have had to ask a few questions about to be like, oh, I'm not really sure what's going on. That's kind of weird. But an engineer would be like, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a bug and I didn't handle that. I'm going to fix it right now. And it'll take them five minutes to fix it. And they can get back to the customer and say, hey, I'm the engineer who wrote this. You found a problem. I'm sorry. I fixed it. If you refresh, it'll be better now, which is kind of the most amazing thing that we can do. Yeah, I think from a, a product development standpoint as well, I mean, it, it must really sort of get people excited mm-hmm. that, you know, if something is going wrong, it's not just I will pass it up the line, I'll pass the ticket up the line. They're getting something that they can fix straight away. And we have a lot of internal mechanisms for the customer experience team to pass things through. Um, so there's the high level stuff that like we need to get on a long term product roadmap to fix. And then there's just the tiny little stuff that anybody can fix in five minutes and, you know, the spectrum all the way in between. We have a lot of mechanisms for customer problems to be you know, passed through to the rest of the company so that we can address them as quickly as possible. Um, obviously, like there are a lot of things that just don't fit with our product roadmap. Um, but the things that do and the things that are easy, like we just want to knock them out as soon as we can. And when it comes to that product roadmap, I, 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 as part of this interview, one of the interviews that I saw with you, you were talking about the role of gaming in putting Slack together mm-hmm. um, and almost sort of having, I don't want to say gamifying messaging, but what kind of mindset was behind the initial uh, product development? So we were very fortunate. Our company actually started in 2009 as another company called Tiny Spec, and we were making a video game called called Glitch. Um, and in order to make Glitch, where we had uh, game design in Vancouver, engineering in San Francisco, um, front-end engineering in New York, music in Toronto, and people doing support, player support all around the world, we needed a way to communicate. And so we spun up an IRC server, but we needed a way to share files. So uh, Cal, our CTO, built a file sharing thing and bolted it on the side. Then we needed to look at code check-in, so we built another web service and bolted it on the side. And over the course of the three years of working on Glitch, this IRC hub became the thing that everybody used to talk when we were making the video game. So we were very fortunate that we basically had three years with a Slack prototype. So when we shut down the video game, which we did because it just wasn't going to be a viable business, it was never going to make enough money, um, you know, you take a look back and you say, well, what else can we do? And we had this tool that we could not live without. None of us ever wanted to work at another company without it. And we're like, we can build that for real. We can build it for real and we can sell it to people. 
And that was the genesis of how we ended up building Slack. So when you have a bunch of engineers and a bunch of designers who spend all day every day going like, how can I make this whimsical and fun and sticky and what will make people delighted to use this? And then you turn them to enterprise software, that part of their brain doesn't go away. They've been exercising that part of their brain for three years. So all of that creativity that no longer had a video game to go into came out in all sorts of tiny little delightful interactions in the product. Um, that creativity was still, like, it still needed an outlet. And you'll find just lots of those little touches in the product came from those very early days of, like, game creativity with, um, you know, needing a new outlet in Slack. Do you find that that sort of element of cross-pollination from the gaming into the product that you have now, when you go to look for developers and you see something quirky in their CV, like maybe somebody was a designer and they switched into development, you know, does that set off a little light bulb going, actually, there could be something interesting about this person? Uh, we, we definitely look for people with non-traditional backgrounds. Um, it's honestly pretty boring to work in a place where everybody has like the same two colleges and the same three companies. Um, so whenever we find something interesting, like we definitely take a look at it. Uh, our engineering hiring process is pretty interesting in that it's very—it's a blind hiring process. So we send a, a, a basically a take-home test out. We give out an engineering task um, that is pertinent to whatever that person would be doing. The results come in, and they are stripped of like name, resume, any identifying information, and it goes to a group of people who uh, grade every single exam. So we judge people solely on their work and what they turn in. And that exam has turned up people who, had we just looked at their resume, we'd be like, eh, you know, maybe not. But they've done a fantastic job on their exam. And the more you find those people, the more you start looking at the resumes and being like, these great people can be anywhere. Like, let's just find out what they can do. And uh, finally, just uh, on the expanded presence in Dublin, um, there's an awful lot of talk about the digital divide and the problems companies across the tech sector have an attracting talent mm -hmm. um to what extent are you finding yourself coming up against this problem and do you think ireland is particularly well suited to deal with it uh we are really fortunate right now that we're not running into that problem and it's uh just a function of where slack is in its business life cycle sort of where we are in terms of people liking the brand and liking the company and liking the product that we are a place where people want to come work. So we actually have not run up against uh, like a talent deficit just yet. I'm sure it's in our future. We're not always going to be the like cutest and most fun company on the block. But um, right now, we are a very compelling place to work. And so to the extent that we can capitalize on that, we should. Um, Having said that, this is, and I'm biased, but this is a truly good place to work. Like we invest, uh, the founding team and the leadership team, we invest so much of our time and energy and uh, just general worry in making sure that this is a place that not only do we want to stay, but that we want to bring other people into and we want them to stay as well. And that was Niall Kitson talking to Ali Rail at Slack. Niall's still with us. Uh, just before we go, what's our one more thing, the one story online on the website that we couldn't squeeze into the podcast today? Yeah, well, this week marked mark the passing of astronaut Gene Kernan, who was the last man on the moon. So we've got a really nice article by Bill McGuinness on techcentral.ie.
It's, and it's a little crazy to think that after all of those successful missions to the moon, that there's not a single person living on the planet who stepped on the moon. I know, it's kind I think of a bit of a landmark, I think. You can get more about uh, that story and, of course, all the Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from our website, techcentral.ie, as well as our weekly tech radio show online and every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RT Radio 1 Extra. Until next weekend, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.